0: So, Asha, Mike Pence is challenging the grand jury subpoena for his testimony. Is he going to get out of testifying before the grand jury?
1: Eh, it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst.
0: And I'm Renata Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst.
1: And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be broken down into a soundbite or a tweet. So, Special Counsel Jack Smith has issued a grand jury subpoena for Mike Pence's testimony. And I know you have thoughts on the significance of that, but procedurally, he is challenging it on constitutional grounds um, and so that issue has to be decided before he even gets in to, uh, in front of the grand jury. And yeah, his, arg- and his argument is that s- so just to, just as a little trip down memory lane, Mike Pence challenged the January 6th committee's subpoena for him to testify by claiming executive privilege.
0: Did he? I thought he just wasn't subpoenaed. I actually thought there was like some secret agreement between his staff and the January 6th committee because they all were super cooperative. And then they the, the committee is like, well, we don't need to talk to Pence because, you know, we've already gotten all this amazing information from these guys.
1: You might be right. They might not have issued it, but he definitely uh basically said that that would be the grounds for that challenge right. it that it would be unprecedented yes, for you know congress to ask him to testify between, uh, about conversations he had with the president so he was intimating that he would invoke executive privilege in that context now with this grand jury subpoena criminal uh for the criminal justice process he is claiming essentially legislative privilege he is claiming that because he was acting as the president of the senate on january 6th that he can claim the immunity offered under the speech and debate clause of the constitution from having to testify yeah so this is kind of crazy cakes. Now, we had a, we had a kind of our initial disagreement cuz you think it's dumb. I agree that it's dumb, but you and I I compared it to the dumbness of the Trump claiming for example that he could pardon himself. It's like it's dumb, but it's also an unsettled legal question. So it you know, it's not like there's anything like a clear precedent, or it's not that it's. And um, in, in fact, I think the self-pardon thing is even dumber. But you disagree.
0: Yeah, this is like next level dumb. I, I think this is like. Uh, so this seems to me like the sort of thing that law professors write in law um, in in law journal articles, where like they're trying to dream. They dream up um, for for our listeners who don't read law review or law journal articles that law professors write. You know, some of this occasionally they will write about a practical topic, but often they like they're sort of dreaming about, you know, interesting, complicated scenarios that bear no resemblance to the real world whatsoever. This strikes me like that sort of thing, like basically Pence's legal team got together and they're like, OK, every argument we could make to, to shut this down is a complete loser. So let's come up with an argument that no one's ever conceived of because it's so bizarre and absurd Okay, here we go, and this is total. You're right; no one has ever considered this. Now you say, "Well, wait, what about the self-pardon? Wasn't that equally dumb?" Well, the self-pardon—I mean, no one's ever tried it, but there's nothing that says you can't—you can't you can't, part, you can't pardon yourself. I mean, it's, it's sort of inherent to the clause, but you're—you're you're kind of. To prevent something that is really bad, like the president shooting people and then pardoning himself or whatever, uh, you, you know, the, the the courts are likely going to limit that. But on the face of it, there's nothing that he says he can't do that here. Like the idea that Pence is committing some sort of engaging in some sort of legislative act and is a member of the legislative branch is bizarre because our entire constitution is set up with him being um, – part of the executive branch. And so I just think, and he's engaging in the executive branch deliberation. So I, I think it's, it's, it's very bizarre uh, to consider him a member of the executive branch.
1: So I think there's more of a colorable argument. I mean, I agree that it's a failing argument and it's, it's really, really stretching um, the constitutional text, but I think there's a colorable argument, and here's a couple of notes on that, which is that because I was on Twitter this morning, (laughs) um, someone quoted uh, Steve Engel from the Office of Legal Counsel under the Trump administration. um, I think from his testimony to the January 6th Committee, where they asked him, um, you know, did you did the Office of Legal Counsel provide advice to Mike Pence about the scope, you know, what what he was allowed to do constitutionally or not on January 6th. And his answer was, no, the office of legal counsel would not be, it would not be appropriate for us to provide advice on what the vice president would do in his purely legislative duties. Okay. So they were considering him an article one officer for purposes of giving office of legal counsel advice. So I'll just put that to the side Now, Steve Engel was my classmate. He also um, wrote some dubious um, internal opinions. So, you know, whatever. But my point is, is that that was the position, at least, you know, in his testimony. Um, So, you know, he is acting. So let me just read for our listeners what uh, the speech and debate clause says. The And I'm going to skip over a couple of parts. The senators and representatives shall receive a compensation for their services. They shall, in all cases except treason, felony, and breach of the peace, be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses. And for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. So... The textual, as you said, Renato, I'll give you this. I think that from the text of the Constitution, say, for example, with the self-pardon, you're right that there's no limitations. And here, the they, in terms of they shall not be questioned, refers to senators and representatives. And even when the vice president is acting as... President of the Senate. He is acting as President of the Senate. He's he's not suddenly a representative or a senator. Um, But I think beyond that, I would say I I guess it would be a question potentially. This is the this is the Pence argument that he is engaging as kind of Steve Engel uh, suggested in a legislative function when he is presiding over the Senate and therefore should be entitled to the privileges and immunities Mm -hmm. that are afforded to the senators and representatives.
0: I am not a constitutional scholar. Okay. This is, this is something that, you know, when I talk to, when I talk about what I think is going to happen in a criminal investigation that I'm saying from many, many years of experience and thousands of thousands of hours of experience, I I don't, I'm not a constitutional scholar and this is not my area of expertise. I, I will say though, that, um a couple of things you know first of all the speech and debate clause is, is being expanded beyond its text by the courts and they have protected for example staffs of uh, congressmen and senators and their you know the their work their written work that they do to try to work on legislation outside of the chamber that's not you know they're not speaking or debating but they're you know working on bills and so on um so it certainly you know would afford if mike pence was you know, did fall under the ambit of that clause would, you know, provide some protection to him. I'm not sure it would uh, protect uh, him from testifying regarding conversations in which Trump um, is trying to pressure him to break the law. Um, but, it, you know, it's an interesting argument that will will run some time off the clock. And I think the important thing from my perspective is it's going to make it look to conservatives and to Republicans like he's not just rolling over and helping the, the government because my initial take was like, okay, I bet Mike Pence's team said, sure, we'll testify if you give us a subpoena And that's that's that was my take of what, what, I, what I thought had happened here uh, because his team certainly seemed very happy and eager to help the January 6th committee. And I'm sure they wouldn't have done that if Mike Pence told them no. And so I just figured that Mike Pence was trying to you know, pretend like he was at arm's length, but actually uh, help Jack Smith. And he may still be in that, in that, in that uh, mindset, but nonetheless, I mean, this is going to make it seem to Republicans like he's, you know, fighting against the evil special counsel.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll just give my thoughts on the constitutional argument. Like, you know, the, the speech and debate clause is there, it's a separation of powers principle to prevent encroachment upon Congress by uh, the other branches. Mm-hmm. It's a separation of powers right. principle. And, um, you know, so it is to protect their core legislative functions, um, you know, from be, you know, from them being subject to harassment for what they're doing. Uh, and in the same way that executive privilege is there to protect the core executive functions. To the extent that Mike Pence played a role on January 6th, it was purely ministerial, A of all. There was no like he's not engaging in legislative duties. Second, as you pointed out, Renato, um, to the what, what Jack Smith is really concerned about is not Mike Pence counting of the votes. It's about everything that led up to January sixth, the pressure that he was under. What were the conversations that he was having with you know Mark Meadows and and the president? Um, maybe what what kind of conversations he was having after the attack began. But you know it doesn't really concern the legislative duties to the extent that they existed per se. And then finally, I'll just say it is, a re- it is pretty effed up to use a separation of powers principle to hinder an investigation into an attempt by the executive branch to usurp Congress's authority and in fact attack Congress for doing its duty in violation of the separation of powers. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's he's kind of turning this principle, the spirit of this principle on its head. And it reminds me of one of the judges who ruled on the executive privilege claims, saying this with regard to executive privilege, like you can't use executive privilege, which is there to like protect, like separation of powers to essentially shield your criminal activity to Violate that principle and overthrow the government.
0: Yeah, I, I just don't even in this in this case, I don't even think it. This is a legislative activity at all. In other words, as you, I mean, it, what what happened here? The conversations that Jack Smith is interested in, and the, you know, part of what's going to happen here is some of this will likely get spelled out um, in in the in the litigation, which I think is in. You know, I I, ordinarily, if I if Pence was, let's say, my client, which of course he's not, but if he was, just to put myself in those shoes, I'd be like, okay, well, one advantage of litigating is we'll know in advance what the questions are, but I think he he already has a sense. Um, and and if I'm Jack Smith, uh, I'm litigating this, and I'm like, hey, all I want to know from this guy is, what did Donald Trump say to you on the phone when he's trying to pressure you to overturn the results of the election? And that's not a legislative function. That's you listening to him on a rant threatening your political career unless you helped him do something that was unconstitutional. That was
1: outside the scope of your constitutional legislative duties. Exactly. Yeah.
0: I mean, so I just think at the end of the day, like whatever way, I mean, a court could just say, could just punt on these goofy constitutional uh, arguments and just say like, regardless even if you assume that they're all true none of this has anything to do with it but i, I so i just think one way or the other mike pence is going to end up testifying um this is my practical advice to somebody who's not a constitutional scholar and my initial gut reaction is is was my was the same as yours which <laughs> is like this is really bizarre
1: yeah and i'll just add you know there's been these weird um arguments that have made, been made just like uh with with trump trying to assert executive privilege against uh, the Biden administration's um, waiving of it for the classified documents, um, turning it over, and now Pence trying to claim the sort of legislative privilege, which, by the way, is yet another chink in this unitary executive theory. If the vice president, an officer of the executive branch, has an independent privilege that can be asserted, then this whole idea that there is this you know, bulletproof Unitary executive is not really true.
0: Yeah. And let me just explain what Asha is talking about because it's a bit, this is a very
1: nerdy legal. (laughs) Yeah. This is
0: like, okay, we've gone full, we've gone full law school nerdy here. Um, So, unitary executive is this theory that, you know, um, uh, Bill Barr and other uh, Republicans have where they say that the executive branch of the government is one person the president of the United States and everyone else are just like hangers on and derive their power solely from the president. And so if the president could decide to do anything, um, you know, I, you know, whatever, uh, just abolish things at will and, you know, uh, you know, do whatever he or she wants. And that will, you know, that that is the executive branch. And as Ash is pointing out, well, if you have an officer at the executive branch, who's independent. I think even Bell Barr would have to admit that the vice president kind of has separate constitutional authority like donald trump couldn't get rid of mike pence as much as he wanted to because pence is elected too right right
1: anyway so let's you're right okay. we've gone we've gone down the full uh you know legal nerd untethered to reality rabbit hole um so let's get back to reality and talk about assuming that pence can't get out of testifying what what does this mean, um, not only for Pence, but the significance of Jack Smith taking this step? Now, remember, Mueller never issued a subpoena for Trump. He didn't go this mm-hmm. far, I think, partly to avoid having to enter these weird constitutional thickets, as it were, I think. Um, Jack Smith is has decided to... You know, he said, "Bring it on." So, what do we make of it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll just say that Mueller, I think, had uncharacteristic restraint for prosecutor. I I don't criticize that. Uh, I know many of our listeners probably would. I have seen too many uh, prosecutors who abuse their discretion to uh, criticize ones who are very you know exercise great restraint. But I, I think Jack Smith. You know, one thing this tells us about Jack Smith, as you point out, just to hook into what you just said, Asha, is I think you know, he's an aggressive prosecutor. And it it also suggests to me, and I think this is very interesting, that he's pursuing the January 6th investigation, particularly this whole question of whatever you want to call it, decertifying votes or, you know, throwing things back to the states, whatever you want to call the scheme that Trump had to thwart the counting of the electoral votes. He is investigating that with a lot of verve and is pushing that forward uh, aggressively. And that's interesting to me because- you know, if you I, I think we've had a, a number of conversations on this podcast about what Jack Smith is doing. And my prediction was always, you know, the Mar-a-Lago case is low hanging fruit. And, you know, he could just like focus on that and push that forward and kind of January 6th. You know, he has to make a decision. Does he want to just wrap up Mar-a-Lago or does he want to, you know, uh, and just like kind of leave January 6th hanging out there? And he's not done that at all. He is pushing hard on January 6th. And what's interesting about it to me is Pence is one of the later witnesses that you would call. You know, the reason I feel pretty confident about saying that um, and we're back in the stuff that I feel like pretty, i pretty I feel like I know a lot about is we've seen from the January 6th committee what this testimony looks like. Like unlike a lot of criminal investigations or their speculation here, we've seen a lineup of most of the witnesses that you would talk to for this case. And so it's going to be all these Pence aides who could testify about all the conversations they had with John Eastman and others in the Oval Office and, you know, how he was? they were trying to change his mind and he was so crazy and so on and so forth. What do you need Mike Pence for, for all of that? The only stuff you need Mike Pence for are, the, are two things. One is the conversations that Pence had with Trump that no one else was part of, which there were supposedly conversations that were relayed to us secondhand um, by um, Pence's aides to the January 6th committee and then second of all pence talking about how he felt and what this what impact this had on him in other words was this just trump repeating you know legal bad legal advice he received which is pence's political way of trying to explain what trump did or was tr- was pence being pressured by the president of the united states and threatened to do something that was illegal and if i'm jack smith i want to know what mike pence is going to say before i indict Trump or not indict Trump, because Pence's testimony is either going to be extremely helpful to Trump or it's going to bury Trump. And I need to know which way, because that's going to impact whether or not uh, I bring an indictment potentially or get a conviction.
1: Yeah, it to that point, I do think that it looks like there is a lot of other things being uncovered in terms of I I know there was some reporting last week about um, the Trump Camp had hired a firm to find evidence of voter fraud and the firm did not find any, you know, so there's a lot yeah. of other things that are putting the nail in the coffin of he totally knew he had lost. Um, but I, I think what you're saying is this is kind of the last little thread that they need to make sure they they know exactly where, you know, what what would be said here if if he were called up on the stand.
0: Right. Well, think about how this is going to play out. Like people often don't understand, you know, people, when, when I talk, when I'm talking to people who are commenting, let's say on Twitter, they're like, well, something's either true or it's false. And it's very black and white. But you can imagine Mike Pence saying, oh, I had conversations with President Trump. You know, he just, he told me that this Eastman guy had these weird theories and he just wanted to let me know about them. Um, you know, wanted me to consider them and make sure that my team had considered them. And I told him I had and, you know, he just made it sound like very conversational, like this is, you know, he's just throwing out some ideas versus, you know, you know, Trump told me that Mike, you know, that I would be disloyal and he would make sure I paid unless I, you know, did what my duty to overturn the election on Jan, or to do whatever on January 6th. And I understood him to mean overturn the election and I told him that that was you know illegal and he didn't care I mean you could see th- those conversations happening in different ways and those having different legal consequences and you know ultimately if someone else was part of those conversations Mike Pence is going to have some ability to you know shape his testimony regarding that for better or for worse and I think you know, he, you know, he's going to say, well, my impression was this, or I viewed it that way, or I understood what he was saying to be this or that. And I think it's going to have an impact on things. For sure. So Asha, what do you make of this weaponization committee? That was, uh, certainly, uh, bizarre.
1: Yes. And there's so many committees happening right now that it's worth, um, Delineating. I actually wrote a piece for Cafe.com uh likening these committees to a three-ring circus. Um, and so you know, in ring <laughs> one you had Hunter Biden. Only three? <laughs> actually, I, oh, I did wow. note that there were some, there were a few others <laughs> and I couldn't fit them all into the three rings. Um but Hunter Biden's laptop, ring one, um, ring two weaponization of government. Um, this is a subcommittee of the judiciary committee, uh, and it's headed by our favorite. Jim Jordan. And what's going on here is that the Republicans intend to use this committee to show that the investigations into the January 6th defendants, you know, were politically motivated, and that in general the FBI is engaging in political persecution. They claim to have all of these FBI whistleblowers which as far as I can tell are FBI agents who were fired for not doing their jobs. Um, but, uh, so so that's kind of, and they're they've likened their committee to the church committee. Now the church and Pike committees in the seventies were basically a turning point in terms of oversight of law enforcement and intelligence, because these hearings, um, in, I want to say it's 1976, um, basically exposed all kinds of civil liberties abuses that the FBI and the CIA were engaging in. So, for example, the FBI was engaging in counterintelligence investigations and activities against, you know, vietnam war protesters and civil rights activists and uh the cia was also participating in this stuff and the cia was doing crazy stuff abroad you know trying to assassinate leaders and things like that anyway it was a very very important um serious bipartisan uh congressional hearings um that led to important reforms The irony here is that many of the reforms that the church committees resulted in, for example, the attorney general guidelines, which kind of puts a lot more guardrails on FBI investigations, in my mind actually got in the way of the FBI really being able to be aggressive leading up to January 6th. I think there's a lot of other failures, but a lot of what came out of the church committee was to make sure that there was a large First Amendment buffer that prevented the FBI from investigating people uh, based on First Amendment activity. And I think for this reason, the FBI was circumspect about policing social media, for example, um, leading up to January Mm -hmm. 6th. Anyway, back to Jim Jordan. This has so far backfired. Um, as far as I can tell, because he's just being schooled by the Democrats on the committee, uh, Jamie Raskin, Dan Goldman, who have pointed out that, um, I mean, they're just basically pointing out the the logical flaws in in some of these things. And then also, Jamie Raskin has talked about the weaponization of, like, if we're talking about weaponization government, what about DOJ leading up to January 6th? What about all these ways that Trump subverted, um, you know, justice? So I don't know that this these committees are going to work out the way that the Republicans want, but that's what, that's where we are.
0: Yeah. I have to say, I don't know if there is a coherent topic that the weaponization committee is about. It, it seemed to me, uh, I tried to watch part of it. It seemed to me like a mishmash of all sorts of like Fox news talking points that had nothing to do with one another. It was completely incoherent. It was just a whole bunch of grievances Many of which don't make sense when you kind of go get past a very thin veneer. Uh, I mean, some of the some of the allegations were absurd, That uh, you know, there's these crimes that have been committed by whatever. It seemed like everything from Hunter Biden to the quote Twitter files to, you know, everything else. And it, it, it just um, it's more the, the purpose of it, as far as I could tell, is to generate Fox News clips for Jim Jordan and other people on the committee. Um, and I don't know what is going to achieve other than you know they're going to get a lot of denied requests by the Justice Department for, you know, in you know, uh, evidence regarding ongoing investigations that they can point to to prove why they need an even bigger majority in the House or that they're quote doing something or whatever.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you point that out because this is it's not going to make sense to you. It's not going to make sense to most of our listeners. Um, this is largely performative because as you said, it's really just regurgitating a bunch of, uh, propaganda talking points, conspiracy theories, um, that are in circulation on the right. But here's the thing. It makes total sense to a Fox News watcher Mm -hmm. because they are in an insulated reality where all of these narrative threads have, you know, are repeated Constantly, they fit together into this whole, you know, deep state conspiracy. So that is who their audience is. They are feeding, you know, they are basically trying to legitimize those conspiracy theories by bringing them into, you know, they have to be true. Otherwise, why would there be a congressional hearing about it? And I think I've mentioned before on one of our episodes, this idea of the propaganda feedback loop. This is a concept that was created by a Columbia law professor, Yokai Benkler, and some co-authors in a book called Network Propaganda. And what they say is that the right-wing media ecosystem is a propaganda feedback loop in which there's a symbiotic relationship between the people to whom they give favorable coverage. Those people then, you know, regurgitate what fox news is saying and then they have this captive audience and basically there's no way for outside facts to come in and there's no internal self-check or you Mm -hmm. know truth check Mm -hmm. in other words they can kind of live in this bubble i think what we'll see with these congressional hearings is that's great if you're in the bubble once you come into once you come outside of the bubble those narratives get pierced and because, you know, you're in reality and they just don't make any sense. I think the question is how much of these Fox News viewers will see that? Will they only watch the, the carefully curated clips of these hearings, as you said, um, you know, of Jim Jordan getting these clips onto Fox News, or will they watch the actual hearing and see that, for example, the only person that was telling Twitter to take down stuff was Donald Trump
0: person in government right yeah
1: in, in government exactly like in other words the, the the narratives that they're saying are actually not only false but projections of what you know was going on I don't know I don't know how much of it will get through I think there might be some sliver of people who will see it but um but I it's not going to get very far but it does it does help to legitimize a lot of the disinformation and propaganda.
0: Yeah, that's a really smart take. I, I, I'm even less optimistic than you. I, do, I doubt almost anybody is going to um, take a look at this outside of their the ecosphere that they're in. Um, and I agree with you that the, the main purpose of this is to provide some legitimacy. I mean, I spend a lot of time talking to people on the right. Uh, I have A lot of family members are on the right and I otherwise interact with lots of, there's lots of lawyers on the right who I have to interact with on a regular basis. And um, for them, they'll throw something out there. Well, oh, there's a whole committee looking at this. That, that's the sort of thing that they would do to sort of shut down me trying to introduce facts into a conversation. Uh, you know, um, I think that's exactly what this is. And it's, it, what, what's sad about it is that I, I think, you know, we're seeing more and more that for a lot of members of Congress, it's particularly true, I think, in the House. It's, the House is not about legislating. It's about finding ways to get yourself on TV clips. Now, this is something that occurs on the left as well. Okay, there's plenty of people who will, you know, do things during questioning to try to get on, you know, cable news. But I just think it's unfortunate on on both sides that that's happening. But I think in the Republican side, as you point out, I mean, this is just pure propaganda. And it's interesting; it almost feels to me like this is their way of trying to throw smoke in response to the January 6th committee, which was very effective. And part of the reason the January 6th committee was so effective is because it was so grounded in facts and they went so far. So, so they were so committed to make sure that their facts couldn't be questioned by calling primarily Republican witnesses, which I think is, was a remarkable fact of that committee.
1: Absolutely. No, I think this is completely intended to, to, uh, obfuscate and disorient, you know, people on which way is up with regard to January 6th. And I think with an eye towards making any indictment of Trump appear politically motivated as well.
0: Yeah. I, even though it's ironic because um they don't hold uh that they they're uh they're very interested in why, for example, um, you know, uh, vice president Biden there hasn't been more investigation of classified documents and they they don't have the same they don't question uh Donald Trump's uh activities the same way very very uh, very obviously uh partisan
1: oh yeah and that's ring 3 is uh, Hunter Biden or Joe Biden's handling of classified
0: documents which is it's just hilarious because Biden's, you know, Biden essentially, uh, it appears like he inadvertently had classified documents and, you know, is totally cooperated and is nonetheless the subject of a federal investigation by a special counsel. Uh, And yet um, that their focus is on that instead of Donald Trump, who like defied the Justice Department, thumbed his nose at them, refused to produce documents uh, in the face of repeated requests and a subpoena and so on. Bizarre.
1: Totally. So before we go, Renato, uh, did you watch the Super Bowl?
0: I did. And I, so I have been, I'm a huge sports fan. I was a, Like when I was a kid, I was like super football fan. That was my number one sport because I grew, I mean, the Bears won the Super Bowl when I was in grade school. So I still know a lot of the words to the Super Bowl shuffle. I I don't know if all of them, but I'm probably, you know, all of them pretty close. Um, But, you know, the Bears have been so bad for a long time that I'm now more of a a NBA and baseball fan. But I still, I'm in a fantasy football league and I follow the league. So I, I didn't have a dog in the fight. But I watched the game and I was a little disappointed with how it ended because it was so exciting most of the way through.
1: Okay. I I know who was playing.
0: (laughs) I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew you were going to. I knew it. You're like a halftime and commercial person. Am I right?
1: I mean, sort of. Um, I I know that Rihanna performed the halftime show. I saw some clips. I know that she was showing her pregnancy Betsy.
0: you only you didn't even watch rihanna in the halftime show
1: i was skiing in utah and it was like opera ski time they have
0: televisions in utah Super Bowl. i think
1: i know i know okay. they do
0: just making sure
1: but i had just gotten out of the hot tub and was having a glass of wine and
0: wow you know you missed an amazing dog crowded. food commercial did you see the dog food commercial
1: yeah how were the commercials they were, were they good of,
0: the dog food commercial was like that was the pull at your heartstrings. And that's like for somebody who has my own dog and loves my dog. That was, I don't know, maybe as a cat person, you wouldn't have appreciated it. But as a dog person, I was like, oh, that was.
1: Okay, I might have to look it up. Which dog it's, food? Um,
0: is it? it was for farmer's dog. The You know, it's just like a fancy. It's like trying to get you to spend twice as so much for your dog food. My dog has like special, he's a special needs dog. So he's got special dog food anyway, but. Okay. It's like, you know, super expensive dog food. And so if you really love your dog, you're going to buy Farmer's Dog because you watch this commercial. It's a great commercial.
1: Hey, what did you think of the halftime show? Because I there was some debate.
0: It, it was good. I mean, I, I will say I, I one thing and this makes me maybe makes you seem like a curmudgeon is I really wish there was less lip syncing in halftime shows. It's just so obvious. I mean, I don't blame Rihanna. Everybody seems to do it in the halftime show, but it's kind of lame. Like I'd love to you know I, I, it's not like i i can always just play her tracks on my iphone i what what would be interesting is to actually hear her sing occasionally to me um but i thought she was good
1: but she's lip syncing to herself right
0: yeah she's just lip syncing to her own voice you know but it's still like to, to be fair rihanna is somebody who a big part of what she does is she's a great performer right and she's a great performance yeah. artist and i thought you know It was amazing. I didn't realize until I, you know, they said revealed it afterwards that she was pregnant. That was amazing. Okay. I I just thought like, whatever, you know what I mean? She was just had a certain style to what she was doing. And, but she was, she's great. Look, she's, she's sort of iconic and has a lot of great heads. Yeah. So, yeah, she, she was a great choice, but. I I don't understand what outrage there could possibly be. I did see there's some of it on the right. I don't know what they were. It's just like, I don't know. She's a black person, so they don't like her. I don't know what that was. I think
1: that's it. At this point, I think that, like... If, if there is a black person doing anything, that means it's woke.
0: I, I guess. I, I don't know. There's nothing woke, but she's like performing like a lot of like major, massive hits. So I don't like over
1: many yeah, years. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know
0: what's uh, like other than she's this very successful artist. I don't know what you would get out of that. I mean, there's nothing particularly. Cra- it wasn't like risque, like, OK, I get I remember when, you know, there's that whole thing with Justin Timberlake, like, oh, wow. Um, it, it was nothing like that at all.
1: There was some there was some right-wing commentator who claimed that her performance was satanic
0: they they got that there was like some sort of i think we talked so about weird. this last time with that other performance like i, I don't know that now actually i could see it there was some imagery like artistic imagery here there's nothing like remotely satanic i mean maybe because she was wearing red is that the idea like we can't wear red anymore i guess is it aren't i not the is all about red i mean do they want to go they want to go blue now i i don't know um it's bizarre
1: there, there was a great tweet, though, on, on Twitter where there was a, a, you know, long distance shot of Rihanna performing and she's in the air on that platform. Yeah. And there's a balloon behind her. Uh-oh. And the tweet says, watch out, Rihanna.
0: <laughs> that's awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: that's awesome. Wow. And, and, and you were and you missed it all. You missed it all. You were you were you were like in a hot tub. Oh, did you have wine? I assume you had wine. Yeah, no fries.
1: Yes. No fries. Yeah.
0: You, you need you need more yeah, protein after a long sore. day on the slopes. I
1: was just, you know, like I I, you know, it's not. I I appreciate if if I were not doing anything, I would totally like I would go to a Super Bowl party or whatever, but I'm just not invested in it. And, you know, I don't it's fine. Are you a professional sports just, person
0: at all? Or are you just like totally out? No. Oh my goodness. No.
1: And I look. I grew up in Southeastern Virginia. There aren't really any like state or local teams Mm. that I identified with. You know what I mean? Like if you grew up in Dallas or Philly or something like that, I think you can get, you know, that regional or local tie. And then I went to Princeton and, (laughs) you know, I love Princeton. (laughs) No offense to anybody, but like, it's not a college that. True. You know, except for its basketball team and. 1996 you know um that uh oh my god who did they beat ucla Mm -hmm. uh in the first round of the the tournament but other than that like i've just had no reason to become to have like professional or college you know to to be that invested
0: okay Uh, i'm yeah obviously i grew up in chicago i i I don't i'm not into college sports because i went to the university of chicago which i think was really
1: but Chicago has a lot of teams. Right. I mean, you there's so many. Oh, right. right. No, I
0: grew up well, I grew up with Michael. Michael Jordan joined the Chicago Bulls when yeah. I was eight years old. Uh, and, and the Bears won the Super Bowl uh, a year later. I mean, it, that was amazing.
1: But here is the flip side. I'm a tabula rasa. Like, I can root for anybody. That's true. So, you know, I texted my boyfriend and I was like, who am I supposed to be rooting for? And he was like, the Eagles. And I was like, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Um I
0: was not rooting for either side because I like. And both he's an teams. Ohio
1: State person, so yeah, you sure. know, like, so I, I can kind of, I can adopt teams. Makes sense because you know I'm, I'm open <laughs>
0: that way. Wow. Well, we, we enjoyed watching the Super Bowl. It was good this year. It was if you missed a great game because it was really went down to the wire. i
1: did i did watch the or i I was in a room with a tv at the end when it was tied and very it was until
0: it wasn't (laughs) it was just running out the clock but yes it was was
1: exciting (laughs) msw media